You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Thursday, July 16, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison, our managing editor from Washington, D.C. But first, Peter Cooper with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. Since early March, at least 121 American companies have declared bankruptcy and have cited COVID-19 as a factor in their decision to do so. And more than 30 American companies that have liabilities exceeding $1 billion have also filed for bankruptcy since January. In order to avoid such disastrous outcomes, companies are tapping into credit markets for funding. And globally, corporations have sold $2.1 trillion in bonds. Just about half are U.S. issuers. However, binging on bonds may only be delaying the inevitable reckoning that numerous companies will have to face. Packing on leverage just seems to be raising the stakes in their desperate attempts to survive. Last month, the IMF had downgraded its outlook for the world economy, declaring that the recession would be deeper and the recovery slower. The World Bank forecasts have also suggested that more than 90% of economies will experience contractions in per capita GDP this year. In comparison, that is greater than the 85% recession rate that occurred during the peak of the Great Depression of the 1930s making this recession the greatest synchronized downturn since the long depression of the 1870s. And if that is what we're facing, this insolvency phase is only beginning to hit its stride. And in light of that, California Resources, the state's largest oil and gas producer, is one of the next to fall and file for bankruptcy. For the past six years, California Resources has been struggling with its incredible debt burden since it was spun off from Occidental Petroleum. The extreme volatility that occurred in oil markets earlier this year the price war sparked by Russia and Saudi Arabia, and major suppression on demand due to the coronavirus was the straw that broke the camel's back. They are the fourth big name in the U.S. energy sector brought down by the pandemic, following in the steps of Whiting Petroleum, Extraction Oil and Gas, and Chesapeake Energy. However, out of all of these, California Resources was the largest conventional producer. Analysts have said that the company's issues have less to do with bad governance and more to do with their debt burden never being manageable regardless of their efforts to reduce it over time. In other words, they've been dealt a bad hand and got unlucky. However, one could say that the demise of California resources is a forewarning to those corporations who are partaking in the credit craze to make it through this pandemic. What happened to California resources is emblematic of how other companies would be destroyed should their balance sheets demonstrate dangerously high leverage. And with that, back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome, Ed. Thank you very much. It's good to talk to you again. You were talking to Roger yesterday, and now I'm back in the saddle. You are back, and after having a very good day. So you were absolutely on fire on Twitter this morning. But first, before we get to that, uh, 
you did a piece with Robert Murphy from the Mises Institute that's live on Real Vision today that is effectively like a clinic on Austrian economics. Yeah, I really I enjoyed uh, talking to him, especially because it was a viewer request. And, you know, more and more, it's good to listen to what the viewers, the people that they're talking about and uh, trying to get them on the platform. I saw actually a comment about getting Mark Thornton on the platform. Uh, he's someone I talked to in the past, and he's also someone that uh, Bob Murphy mentioned in the video who knows a decent amount about Austrian economics. So he, I think he might be the next person to talk to uh, to give that point of view as well. Yeah, it's a really fantastic piece for people who haven't seen it yet. It's a great narrative arc. It really explains, it tells the story of Austrian economics. I think very much in layman's terms, you guys use a lot of really terrific metaphors. There are a lot of stories. It explains it really well. Uh, and by the way, that chart, we've seen it many times before in different forms, uh, but that shows the S&P 500 versus the Fed balance sheet. Uh, boy, it really tracks one to one. Yeah, I, I, he mentioned that, Bob, about the fact that, you know, the Fed turned it on and the S&P went up. There's definitely a, a, a correlation going on there. Yeah, it's also interesting to me because you get into uh, market microstructures and asset bubbles. You talk about the water for diamonds paradox. Uh, and it's also incredibly comprehensible. I, I thought it was one of my favorite pieces that I've seen in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I, you know, Bob Murphy, he has his own uh, podcast. So he's a guy who is well-versed in being able to present his ideas to a layman's audience. So I think that's probably why uh, he came across so well. He seems like a really humble guy as yeah. well, You know, uses plain spoken language. I, I, I really enjoy talking to him. Yeah, the other thing that I found interesting was there was some point, and I forget his exact words, but he said, look, does Austrian economics have all of the answers? Will we get it 100% right? Probably not, but this is an important point of view that helps you see the world through a different lens from what we've seen in traditional mainstream economics. And as we've, we've talked about the last couple of days, we know the suffering and pain and failure um, that has arisen out of the dominant paradigm that we have today. Yeah, and you know, to be honest with you, it is a point of view that I am sympathetic to, the Austrian view. One of the things that I find good about it is the fact that it's not completely steeped in in um, in a bunch of numerical jargon that tries you know tries to make economics into a science which it's not because yeah. they recognize that uh, human action is a big part of that there's a lot of social psychology involved and that there's the unknowable uh, you can't really put that down into numbers and if you get uh, things from a model perspective and start really getting exactitude on what outcomes are going to be, you can get fooled by that model and those numbers. And I, I don't think that they do that. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Murphy talks about that, I think, very eloquently, that you have this this illusion of false precision, for lack of a better phrase, that makes it seem uh, as though it's uh, more scientific or accurate than it is. The models themselves can be worked out repeatedly with great precision, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily correspond to the real world. Yeah, exactly right. So, Ed, talking about the other thing that you're on fire about today, you've had a good day, uh, Twitter this morning. Yeah, so there was this post, and actually it was a stream, uh, it was a, a, a Twitter thread that I did when the jobless games came out. You know, 
it, honestly, recently I've been sort of uh, on a rant. Let me just do another rant this time about the laziness, I would call it, of, uh, of financial reporting and uh, of accepting data at, at first blush and, and not looking into the data. So we got the unemployment claims out today. They come out every week. I think it's the best time series in terms of real-time data to get a sense of you know where inflections in the economy are. These are the and, Thursday numbers, the unemployment claims numbers versus the Friday numbers that were released monthly. Ex exactly. And so th these numbers show what happened in terms of employment claims the week before. So they come out Thursday and they're showing you know the, the full week uh, that was before that. And so they're relatively new relative to the, the numbers that you're talking about, which are usually, you know, I think that the numbers that came out in early July were from like June the 12th, June the 14th, yeah. so that they're really, you know, three weeks old. Non-farm payroll, yeah. Right. And so what these numbers were showing, uh, I'm looking at them right now as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at and I see they showed that June 27th week, uh, 1,408,000, that's uh, 1. 1.4 million, then 1.310 million, and then 1.3 million initial claims, right? So a trend that goes down, and I know from having looked at the numbers, that trend starts in early April, I believe April the 4th. So people reported the number 1.3 million, they said claims were down again. But that's not what is going on. If you look at the numbers, if you look at the uh, non-seasonally adjusted numbers, what you see is actually for the first time, since April the 4th, we actually had an increase in initial claims. And in fact, the increase was relatively large, 108,811. And so what's going on here is that what we're seeing is two things happening at the same time. One, you have seasonal adjustments on the one side, and two, you have the pandemic on the other side. In terms right. of seasonal adjustments, the seasonal adjustments are meant for a garden variety type of cyclical fluctuation. They're not made for you know, 1.3 million jobless claims. They're made for 180,000, 300,000 jobless claims. Uh, to give you an example, the great financial crisis, 1.3 million is actually double the highest level that we saw during the great financial crisis. So w when we're looking at the numbers in terms of uh, the, the seasonal variation, we see a seasonal variation that's actually relatively large, 10%, 15% at this particular juncture. And so when you have a number as large as it is in terms of the claims, the, the magnitude of just multiplying that by uh, or dividing it by the uh, seasonal adjustment factor gives you a distorted view of what's happening. So the real numbers went from 1.395 million debt up to 1.5 uh, million. And it was easy to see. All you had to do was just look at the release and see that actually last week was the first time in three months that we saw jobless claims, initial jobless claims go up. And that's not a good sign. Yeah, that's very well explained. Perfectly fine to do the seasonal adjustment uh, in ordinary fashion during ordinary times, but during extraordinary times, you get significant, significant distortions. And let me let me say as well, when you look at the uh, when you look at the continuing claims, it's exactly the same thing. Continuing claims for the they're lagged by a week back. So the June twenty seventh numbers were sixteen point five million, which was down from seventeen point uh, four million the week before. But then they went up 
to 17.35 million. So they were up 838,000 on the week, whereas the seasonally adjusted number showed the numbers coming down by 400,000. So that's a swing of over 1.2 million. And when you add into that all the people who are on pandemic unemployment assistance, what you get is a, a, a sense that we're really at a turning point. That is the reopening has stalled that we're seeing that in the numbers for the first time in real time, as I'm saying, initial jobless claims are real-time data saying that more people are now applying for unemployment insurance uh, for the first time in three months since we had uh, you know, the lockdown phase back in April. Critical point, and this is probably the impact of the reopening and the spike in cases that we're actually seeing in, in that high-frequency data series. Right, yeah. So, I mean, when we're seeing... So basically, we saw the lockdown. We saw a massive spike in, in uh, jobless claims. The lockdown kept on going. Eventually, we got the reopening in May. The numbers were already going down before they continued down. And then suddenly, the spike came in terms of coronavirus cases. And then now, along with that spike, you have a rollback of the reopening. And on the, you, now you see real-time data in the employment market uh, confirming that this rollback is having a negative impact. On, uh, on on the economy. Interestingly, I saw, by the way, uh, I thought this was great. I, I posted this on Twitter as well. Uh, JP Morgan, they uh, had a um, they had a, a, a study that they did. And, and here's the quote from their study. They said, although average spending fell for all households in, in, the, in their study, what they saw, saw, as the economy shut down at the start of the pandemic, we find that the unemployed households actually increased their spending beyond pre-unemployment levels once they began receiving benefits. So the upshot of that is, what it says is, I think it says three things. It says that one, if we get rid of the pandemic unemployment assistance that people are receiving, that's the $600 per week that they get, in addition to their normal unemployment benefits, the U.S. will fall back into a recession. That is, the numbers will roll over, not just sort of you know peak and 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 go down, but actually go into negative territory. Uh, the second is that the marginal propensity to consume is much greater for people of lower income households. And the last thing to take away from what they're saying is that fiscal deficits, th these massive fiscal deficits. I think the deficit in June was something like 800 billion dollars for the United States in one single month, that's preventing an economic depression. So all told, what that says is we have the potential at the end of July uh, with the roll off of this PUA, that's the, the pandemic unemployment assistance, we have the potential for a recession slash economic depression because of a policy error when that when that happens. So it's definitely something to watch if we do not renew that $600 uh, on the back of already increasing unemployment, then you're going to see some bad things happen in the U.S. economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Yeah, a lot to unpack there. I think that's limited at uh, sub 46 weeks or so. Uh, and that can be a significant risk when that does roll off. Uh, you know, I also wanted to take a minute to talk a little bit about uh, something that I think we do really well at Real Vision and, and why I think these numbers were misreported. You know, Financial reporters, generally very hardworking, diligent group. But the structural constraints, first of all, most of these people work for very large companies, right? And number two, um, there's so much pressure to do this stuff fast, right? There's like, you've got to get the data out within 10 minutes because people are going to be trading off it and all of this sort of thing. And sometimes the context gets lost. What does this number mean? Why does it matter? What's the context? Does the seasonal adjustment have a major impact as it does here? And this is, I think, something that we do really well at Real Vision. That's one of the reasons why, I mean, we record this show at 4 p.m. It comes out at 6 p.m. We have all day to think about these things and to try and add context, to try and add, you know, hopefully some intelligence and wisdom around what those numbers actually mean rather than just reading it, you know, on the front page of your favorite financial website 10 minutes after they come out. Well, I, I appreciate your diplomacy there, but let me just be a bit more uh, undiplomatic, uh, even though I was a diplomat in the past. I mean, these guys are just lazy. I mean, the numbers were right in front of their faces. All you have to do is read the numbers and you can see they go up instead of going down. How can you report with a straight face that unemployment claims went down when they actually went up? I don't care what the seasonal adjustments say. You have to see that and think this is a phase shift. The second thing that I did is I went back and I looked at the historical numbers. I just went and I said, okay, is, that, is this something that has happened in the past? How, uh, the fact that the numbers went up again. And so I looked at the numbers and what I saw when I looked at the numbers is, is that every single week since uh, the, the close, the lockdown, tick, 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 tick down, all the numbers on initial claims have ticked down every single week. And so this is actually the first time. That's a significant event when over a 13-week period, uh, over a, a, a longer period of time, actually I think it's a 17-week period, you see a tick down and then suddenly you get a, a tick up. You have to mention that. If you don't, then you're not doing your job. Yeah, good explanation. I'll be the designated diplomat and just say Real Vision does a very good job thinking these things through. Good. Yes. Do that. <laughs> uh, so uh, talking of challenges, uh, Bank of America reported today 52% total decline in net income. Uh, net income dropped to $3.53 billion from $7.35 billion on a year-over-year -year basis. Uh, and the number that really struck me, consumer banking dropped a stunning 98%. Yeah, I think that that's where the rubber hits the road here. So here's how I'm thinking about it in terms of uh, the Bank of America thing. If you look at the totality of the banks over the past few days that we've seen reporting, you have on the one side the ones that are most leveraged to c consumer banking. That's Wells Fargo and J Wells Fargo and Bank of America, and to a lesser degree, uh, J.P. Morgan and Citibank. And then you have the big banks, which are not really banks; they're really investment banks, like. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And there's a bifurcation there. The ones that are most leveraged to the real economy, consumers like Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they're getting their asses handed to them. They're not doing as well. The ones that are most leveraged to the financial economy, uh, markets which are soaring relative to where they were in March, they're doing really well. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, just unbelievable numbers for their trading. 
that's a huge difference. So what we see within the banking sector, within the financial services sector, is a bifurcation that is really a bifurcation in the U.S. economy. And what's interesting is if you if you net out just the trading revenue, and we have a chart called Trading to the Rescue that actually shows this, what you see is that Goldman, J.P. Morgan, and Morgan Stanley dramatically outperformed their peers, specifically Citigroup and Bank of America. Uh, Wells does not have a significant operation in that area uh, on just that particular area. And it suggests that those banks have done the best uh, at monitoring data and figuring out how to profit in those trading divisions. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's their bread and butter. That's what they're all about. JP Morgan, uh, they're known for that. Uh, B of A, you know, you would think because they have Merrill as a legacy that they they should do really well. But, you know, they've become much more of a consumer shop. Uh, and that just tells you that uh, Merrill as an institution somewhat withered on the vine in terms of, you know, the, the effect that they have in terms of the profitability. And what's interesting for me is uh, to think about the wealth management business, the other brokerage uh, as well. You, Merrill should really help uh, B of A, but if they didn't, uh, I haven't seen the numbers specifically, that's really unfortunate for B of A because they did in the last recession pay a lot of money for Merrill, which was almost at the point of bankruptcy when, when they bought them. Yeah. Well, one number we did get from Bank of America today was that they provisioned $5.1 in loan loss reserves Q2, and that's effectively the most since the great financial crisis since 2010, at least. Yeah. So, you know, piggybacking on what uh, Peter was saying, obviously, what they're looking at is um, bankruptcies, massive bankruptcies coming forward. So I think that the other banks, uh, the, the, the commercial banks, Together, yesterday, the number got up to 28. So with B of A, that would get us to 33. So at least uh, $33 billion of loan loss reserves. And again, as you were saying, the most since the great financial crisis. Then, you know, I saw Felix Salmon, who is over at Axios, uh, talking about the JP Morgan call and how JP Morgan is very downbeat about the economy. Some of the other banks are downbeat about the economy. They're provisioning a lot. So why is the market going up when these guys are telling you point blank that, you know, we see bad things happening? We're preparing ourselves with, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase with our fortress balance sheet, as Jamie Dimon would call it. We're preparing ourselves for a, a very bad time. Yet, yeah. You know, uh, we, we see Tesla and uh, companies like that at near all time highs. Yeah. You know, and, and to exactly that point. Uh, you were saying about and uh, the numbers reflect the, the worst since the great financial crisis. Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America, said, and I quote, uh, this is the worst time since, quote, the most tumultuous time since the Great Depression, not the great financial crisis, the Great Depression. Yeah. So I think that it is uh, it, it, it's to be seen. I mean, let's actually let me put it a different way. I was going to start out with a different uh, comment. The reality is, is, if you look at the numbers that we were talking about in terms of the initial jobless claims, reflective of the coronavirus situation, and then you look at what JP Morgan is doing and what Bank of America is doing, and you take that with what Peter was telling us earlier, it paints a composite picture where we had a reopening and we were off to the races. Retail sales are back to where they were before. We're flush with cash because, in part, government largesse helped us get there. But now things are rolling over. 
and they, they potentially could roll over in a big way. I think, you know, the dichotomy between what's happening in Europe and what's happening in the United States is something to watch because uh, the, the way that things are rolling over, the way that the virus is still prowling the United States is uh, very much uh, a consideration in terms of underperformance of the real economy. And yeah. let's just see if that if that translates into the, the, the financial economy. Yeah, and precisely to that dichotomy between real economy versus financial, Morgan Stanley, completely different story. Gross revenue and net income today, top and bottom line, all-time highs in the history of the company. Fixed income trading nearly tripled, 73% increase in trading revenue. So, I mean, should we as a, uh, a society, what should we think about that? Obviously, we as shareholders of Morgan Stanley will, are, are, should be overjoyed. But what does this, what does this say about the economic model that we've put together uh, in order to allow that to happen when we have these massive bankruptcies happening at the same time, when we have people dying by the hundreds every single day in the United States. To me, it, 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 it speaks to you know the reason that I went on these rants on Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable, despicable, I would say even. Yeah, I mean, in the simplest possible terms, what it tells you is the model is drastically, dramatically broken. It is not working. It is not delivering prosperity. It is not creating opportunity. Uh, and it is not creating a society where even the most basic fundamental aspects of healthcare, like virus testing, are getting done. So I, I think that uh, this is going to be a big uh, question you know, politically, once we come to November, I, I don't know what else to say, but uh, it, it's really tragic uh, what's happening in the U.S. And I don't think that uh, there's anything good that you can say about it, except let's just hope that uh, we get our act together sometime in the near future. Yeah, you know, and to add one more data point to the mix before we close here, because I think it's absolutely supportive of what we were both just saying about how badly broken this model is. Uh, Professor Emeritus Edward Altman uh, at NYU, who created the Altman Z-score, which is a popular uh, mechanism for measuring the risk of bankruptcy. It's basically a measure of the relative strength of the balance sheet and the income statement, weighing assets and liabilities and boiling it down to a simple score, came out with a significant warning today. And I think it's worth remarking and reading the quote. Quote, there is a huge buildup in corporate debt by the end of 2019. And I thought the market would gain some much needed deleveraging with the COVID-19 crisis. Now, seems like companies are again exploiting, and the quote continues, what seems to be a crazy rebound. Full stop, close quote. <laughs> and you know, uh, I can, I just, let me rant one more time here on this, because I talked about this on Tuesday, the whole concept of giving uh, tax breaks to the rich and to corporations. The whole concept is that doing so will allow these individuals and these corporations to pile their money into capital investment, and that capital investment will increase productivity, it will create prosperity, and that prosperity will lead to growth in the economy, which we all will share in. But what we've seen instead is a re-leveraging of companies. We've seen them buy back their shares, leverage up their companies, and, and, and basically take all the money for themselves. And when we think about the, the fact that you know, the poorest people, the people who are receiving unemployment, 
are spending more into the economy basically because they're destitute. Otherwise, without the 600 bucks that they're going to get, we see that there's a huge dichotomy there uh, yeah. between how money is spent by you know the working and middle classes and how it's being spent by those who are buying back shares and leveraging up. And we should not be rewarding those who are leveraging up and who are now going bankrupt. They, totally. they should not be getting bailouts from the Fed. Totally right. Uh, totally right, Ed. And you know, this is an important point because effectively there's a moral argument to be made against the economic inequality that we have in the country, but there's also a very clear practical economic argument to be made. And when you wed those two together, it's very clear that the system has got to change or we're just going to go into this cycle of greater inequality and greater structural damage to the US economy. You know, it's really interesting to see that the one thing, you know, obviously you were talking to Mr. Murphy today from the Mises Institute, Dr. Murphy, I should say, uh, and, and the arguments that you hear uh, from some aspects of the progressive left, they both agree on one thing, which is the system is broken. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. I agree with you that it is broken. We can just hope that uh, this is a galvanizing moment to fix it. Uh, Let's just hope and pray that that's, that's, that's where we are. Well, we've both gone rogue today, Ed. Yeah, it's about time, Ash. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You bet. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.